a white supremacist who has engaged in an act of terrorism. Hate kills again. We're aggressively investigating this at the federal level as a hate crime and as an instance of racially motivated violent extremism. And there is a manifesto. The shooter traveled hours from outside this community. Terrorism in Buffalo with South Florida implications. Welcome board member Fogenholy. Broward School Board has a new member. I think that there's a lot of gaps in between communication between the governor's office, between school board. The governor's appointment, the growing political focus on schools. My main focus needs to be focusing on District 5. You think it's fentanyl? I'm fairly certain. To the southern border, tracking the source of fentanyl in Florida. So take a look at this. These are pill presses that were seized. Exclusive access as close as you'll get. The big news of the week, all live this week in South Florida. Good morning, I'm Glenna Milberg. Michael is off just us today and we begin with the developing case again of mass murder and hate, both of which South Florida knows all too well. This time, the mass shooting at a supermarket in Buffalo comes with an apparent manifesto. The 18-year-old shooter reportedly forecast and posted and live streamed his murderous intentions targeting blacks, citing racist and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. We welcome now Yael Hirschfield. She is with the ADL Southern Division, the Director of Incident Response and Law Enforcement Initiatives, live via Zoom. Yael, great to see you again. Uh, so sorry under these circumstances, but welcome. Thank you, Glenna, for having me. You know, the Anti-Defamation League is usually associated with response to anti-Semitic, uh, anti-Jewish acts. But the ADL was the one of the first to respond publicly with a statement after the supermarket shooting yesterday, um, calling this uh, attack on black people 100% uh, by white supremacists, raising that flag. What happened there? What we see is this individual that murdered uh, these people at the supermarket and our hearts and prayers go out to the victims, their families and the community targeted, that he espoused what we are calling the great replacement theory. This conspiracy theory really blames the Jews for the immigration of non-white people into the United States. So in this very twisted ideology, going in murdering uh, individuals of color, in this case, the black community, and blaming the Jews for the responsibility of changing the demography of the United States are intertwined. And that's what we need to understand about white supremacists and white supremacist ideology is that anything that is non-white is to be blamed, is to be targeted, and can potentially become a victim. So all of the marginalized communities need to band together to push against this conspiracy theory. So let's let's take a little dive into that great conspiracy theory. And we've seen this in quotes. This is a, a thing that apparently had been mentioned or, or attributed to in uh, the Tree of Life in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, the shooting there in, in 2018, Synagogue in Poe, California in 2019, and also in El Paso, Texas, the Walmart shooting. Um, and so this sort of bubbles up now to more of the public consciousness. 
uh, again and again, and especially with this weekend. But it seems like this has been a thing on the what deep web or or sort of under the the first layer. What are, why now? What is this? How is this kind of bursting onto the public scene? Well, two two issues here, Glenna. One is yes, it has been an an theory, a conspiracy theory that has been bubbling in those dark spaces uh, in social media platforms, 8chan, 4chan, Discord, that have absolutely no, uh, you know, remorse in promoting this kind of discourse. But we've also seen it become more mainstream. And we've called it out when someone like Tucker Carlson promotes the great replacement theory in his, uh, you know, online uh, platform or on the news, on Fox News, and it makes it normalized. And it comes from, you know, these dark places and become mainstream. We need to call it out. This great replacement theory is now being talked about in all circles. It's not just being talked about in the recess of online platforms, but it's become mainstream and we need to push back. So I think you are identifying a really troubling trend when you know disinformation and misinformation in our time now is is so dangerous and so hurtful. But now things like this are appearing on what are otherwise and in many ways reputable news outlets. And and that's confusing. How do reputable news outlets and professional journalists pick up and carry disinformation and conspiracy theory. How does that happen? Glenna, I, I think you've hit it on, on the nail. I think what happens is that we have become so polarized in our society that we lack the responsibility of the impacts of our words. And we put out theories and explanations into the world that can cause more and more people to believe these conspiracy theories and eventually act on them. We call on all media outlets uh, to be more responsible because words have direct impact as we have seen in the actions that happen in Buffalo, New York. So hate speech is free speech and more and more we have been discussing acts of hate. I know anti-Semitic acts have gone up, are spiking in the past couple of years. We've been reporting on that. We watch what happened over the weekend, anti-Semitic and anti-black and anti-minority uh, hate has been going on, fueled by this hate speech that is free speech. Once Congress or any local entity tries to make a law that it limits free speech, we're watching it happen via Twitter right now. There are huge red flags that go up. How, how do you combat hate speech and protect free speech? Absolutely, so yes, hate speech is protected speech, but you combat hate speech with more speech. People are not born hating, they learn to hate. They imbued this information and make it part of their um, you know, view of the world. And we combat that with more speech. You know, education is at the forefront of where we should be focusing. And when we try to limit education in our schools, we need to go back to learning more about diversity, learning about other people's cultures, talking about racism. 
these things open our minds to really understand our society and we can combat hate with learning. So that's the first step. The second step is really to hold our leaders accountable for what they say and how they be act and the, the legislations that they're putting in place to really curtail this understanding of a world that is so diverse and beautiful, right? To blaming one part versus another. We need to hold our leaders accountable for that. So we need to be on all fronts and understand that when we create this rhetoric of divisiveness, when we blame the other for our ills, that words will lead to action. In Florida alone, we have seen 247 extremist activities. They're all recorded on the ADL website on our heat map. And 220 of those are propaganda related, meaning hate speech that is protected. We need to push back on those. So right now, this 18-year-old, uh, they're still trying to, or law enforcement is still trying to authenticate this manifesto. By all accounts, they believe it is a paper written by this 18-year-old that describes what he is about to do in that supermarket, why and where and what, and live streaming. Um, we, we, in the media, and I don't profess to speak for anyone else, but really struggle with the line of t not naming shooters, not glorifying mm -hmm. what they say, and yet being able to report on it, and that's a very fine balance. But I want to read you uh, a little bit about what some reporters who have been privy to this manifesto have reported that this 18-year-old answered yes when he was asked whether he was a fascist uh, and a racist and and was radicalized you mentioned on 4chan and and mm -hmm. seems like you know there's almost like a pride and a public mm -hmm. nature now to this kind of identification Yes, uh, uh, absolutely. There, there's the reason why this person writes this manifesto and puts it out to the world, because they're proud of their position. They want everyone to know. There's a reason why he wants to live stream. There's this necessity to, you know, be featured, uh, hail as a hero within those hateful circles of white supremacists. So, yes, there is a balance. We can talk about the ideology and we can talk about you know, the activity, and we can uplift the families and their victims without even naming this individual, uh, so as to minimize this desire to be featured. So in the, in the minute or so that we have left, from, from your perch, what kind of laws, if any, what kind of policies don't we have yet, locally or nationally, that might, that might stop this? I think we are exploring ways to really make uh, social platforms uh, more accountable for how they interact with the public. They are businesses, and businesses can be, uh, you know, curtailed in the manner in which they uh, have activities. We should demand um, more uh, transparency. Um, we have been calling out on many different social platforms to really be more transparent on how they promote uh their business model and and who is targeting and how they are really contributing to the misinformation and disinformation those are kinds of things that legislation can look into and put things in place uh to really curtail this kind of wild spreading of misinformation and disinformation in these platforms that's one thing the other thing that that legislation can do is really create uh the the 
environment where we can train more law enforcement to really uh, have the tools and the means to really track this kind of uh, ideologies uh, and also protect marginalized communities by allocating resources uh, to them so that they can uh, we can prevent this kind of situations from occurring. So there's many different levels in which uh, leaders in our uh, country can affect change and, and promote uh, laws and regulations that will prevent this from happening. Yael Hirschfield with the Anti-Defamation League, always valuable perspective that we appreciate. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me, Glenna. Up next, with a growing political focus on schools, the governor appointed a new board member for Broward County Schools, and he is with us live next. races are those down-ballot races, though increasingly in sharper focus. Schools are at the center of some of the most controversial new state laws. The fights over mask mandates and school board members hold some serious purse strings. Broward's newest school board member was just appointed by Governor Ron DeSantis to fill the seat vacated when Rosalind Osgood was elected to the state Senate. Daniel Foganoli is with us right here today. So nice to virtually meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you too, Glenna. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, and thank you so much for spending a little of your Sunday morning with us. So by, uh, by profession, you were a furniture designer. How did you get on the governor's radar for this appointment? <laughs> Just a little bit of a change, right? Uh, switched it up a little bit. But um, we did send, you know, I sent in the application um, a little late um, when we started seeing the rumors of the seat not being filled. Um, one of the things that worried me is especially District 5, it's a district that does need representation. And once that rumor started getting around that that was not gonna be filled, it, it did worry me. Um, so I sent in that application, You know, got the chance to go up to Tallahassee and have good conversation with the governor and his staff. Um, and that was one of the things that really you know, got on my radar to make sure that we wanted to talk to the governor of seeing the importance of this district and making sure that it, you know somebody was there to represent them. So you sound like you are someone who reaches out to the governor or maybe has been involved in politics. And when I started kind of Googling around in preparation for our interview, I see you have filed to run as a state representative, a Republican from the Coral Springs area. Um, so how, how is that gonna work? I mean, are you gonna, you have a two year appointment. So do you stay on the school board? Do you resign to keep a state rep run? How does that work? Yeah, Glenn, it's, it's not a two-year appointment. It would be until um, November. So for whoever's running for the seat, it would be filled then. Um, but for me, it would be making a decision of where we're going to run, whether it be the U.S., you know, for the Florida House. And that's what I'm currently registered as. Um, but right now, that's something that we're looking at to, to actually change or what the decisions are going to make, you know, to move forward. But right now, I am registered as a candidate. Um, but it would, it would change in November. You know, whoever's running for that seat would be, looking to fill that seat come November. I want to talk to you about some, you know, school board related stuff, but I can't help but make the observation that you keep saying we. Who's we? Oh, we, I'm sorry. When I say <laughs> we, I'm talking about me and the boss, my wife. Ah. Uh, that's something that those decisions have to be made with her. Um, happy wife, happy life. I have to, have to go through her. I'm sorry. Amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, um, so a school board a school board seat is a nonpartisan seat. Technically, you are a Republican. Rosalind Osgood was a Democrat. Uh, you mm -hmm. mentioned District Five. You don't live in District Five. So, mm -hmm. how do you 
But what do you tell your constituents now in District 5 that you can ably represent them living somewhere else, uh, being a party that's different than most of District 5 by the books, by the numbers, um, mm. and yet you were put there by the governor. How do you, what do you tell your constituents about how you are going to ably represent them? Sure, and I think one of the things that attracted me to this is it is nonpartisan. Um, I believe it's it's one of those things we need to show true leadership in this position to be able to work with everyone. I think like we've seen even earlier in the show, we've seen so many things are being you know torn and being pulled to each side, whether it be right or left. But in this position, we need to represent the community. And it doesn't matter Republican or Democrat, we need to work together um, to represent the district, represent the community. Um, Dr. Osgood, of course, was in there, but we've done multiple events already, even in this little bit of time. I told her she's not off the hook that easy. Um, we have to work together. And of course, we may see things differently politically. Um, it's important that we work together, work with the community leaders to make sure that we're doing what's best for these kids, best for these schools, and best for the community. And in this time of political divide, that is really nice to hear because if you watch this program, you know we like to spread the love and connect people. <laughs> so, and you did tell in your swearing in, you did tell the audience that you wanted to be a bridge builder, that you wanted to fill in the gaps between the governor's office and the school board. You said you felt that there was not really the communication there wasn't what it should be. Um, mm. You are now on a school board that in the past couple of years has, has really been defiant uh, to the governor, sanctioned by the governor. How, okay. how do you plan to be that bridge? Sure, Glenn, and I think something to look at it, it the past couple of years have been extremely tough, not only for the school board, but for everyone, um, for our students, for our administration, for our teachers. Uh, nobody signed up knowing that we were going into a pandemic, and that made it extremely difficult. Um, we looked at problems that nobody was used to looking at. There were things that we had to deal with, whether it be masks, vaccinations, different things that really tore our community apart, um, and especially that communication between the governor's office and here. So, of course, there's some things I did disagree with, with the school board of decisions being made, but I have a great respect for the women that I currently serve with. Um, because they had to go through things that nobody was prepared to go through. So I believe now it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to move forward, to really put in you know, good work to make sure we're representing everybody in our districts and in our county. Um, there's a lot of trust that was lost. There's a lot of trust that was lost between the school board, but not only that, but our government. Uh, there's so much lost trust, so now we need to gain that trust back. And the only way we're going to do that is by showing up and putting in the work to to represent our constituents. So the women, you know, you mentioned the women that you serve with. I forgot, you know, the, the Broward School Board. Now you're the only guy on that school board. Welcome. <laughs> um, you know, they they made a decision, especially when when masks were in focus. They made a decision that defied the state policies. They were sanctioned for it. They were took a financial hit for it. Would you have made that same decision? I, you know, and that's. That's one of the things I would like to say that we move fast. You know, if we move past, they move past it. Um, I'm, since I'm not in that seat, I wouldn't, you know, want to get into that right now because, like I said, it's an opportunity to move forward. We're, we're now past that situation. So it's now what are we going to do from here on out to make sure that we're doing what's best for our schools? And, you know, one of the things, too, Glennon, to think about focusing on those things, I feel like a lot of the focus on education was lost. A lot of the focus on our kids was lost because of, of these different things, and it became political. Um, as much as we try to say it's a nonpartisan seat, a lot of these things do become political, but it's important that we work together to, to get past it. Um, so that's that's a things. great that's a great segue to the break. Sit tight for a little while because um, we're going to move forward and talk about some new laws that were are very political, and we'll talk about that and how they affect schools when we come right back.
We are back with Broward County Schools newest board member, Daniel Foganoli. Um, let's talk about Daniel. If, can I call you Daniel? Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Okay, yeah. I know we just met. <laughs> um, let's talk about some of the new laws that passed such a focus on education in this last legislative session. And some of those laws have proven to be the most controversial, subject to a lot of news coverage, a lot of disinformation and misinformation on both sides as well. So I want to get your take on the parents' rights in education law is what a lot of opponents are calling the don't say gay law. Um, how that practically is going to be to play out this next school year is we don't know. Um, but really it's about what parents can and do have a say in their, in their child's edu education. And one little paragraph addresses how uh, discussions and conversations and curriculum can be talked about when it comes to sexual identity, gender identity. How do you foresee that playing in Broward County schools and the fears that some of, uh, you know, a sizable population of the schools feel like they might be marginalized? Not that they will be marginalized, but definitely feel like they will be. Yeah, and it's, it's one of those things, and especially with with these bills, I always say this of when it comes to allowing, we say allowing parents to get involved in their kids' education. We shouldn't allow it, we should encourage it. You know, our community is very vocal on the things, and I've, even for the little bit of time that I've been here, two weeks of being in the district, going out, speaking to parents, they're very vocal and I appreciate it because I need to hear from them, you know, what's important for their kids and what they wanna see in education and the things that we're gonna fight for. Um, so it's extremely important, and I say it on a personal level, um, even things that go in a classroom, if it's something that's going on with my son, um, or how my son is feeling, or if different things that he says, I would really hope that somebody would come tell me, because the one that loves him the most is me. You know, I would want to have that discussion with him, and not to have it with somebody else, and that goes for either side of the spectrum. Like I said, it goes off of politics. You know, we don't want somebody that sees a right ideology or a left ideology pushing their beliefs on a kid because, of, you know, they believe or feel a certain way. So let but me just... Having let, the parents involved. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, per, um, permit me to interrupt for just a minute, just so mm -hmm. cl clarifying. Do you... Are, are you... Um, are you... Do you believe that right. things like um, the kind of curriculum that is now banned or outlawed, whether it be about gender identity, whether it be about certain kinds of teachings about racial history, do, do you consider that indoctrination? Depends, depends how they're coming across. I think a lot of books that are being banned, things that are being looked at, especially by the governor's office and different things that we're looking at, a lot of, the, a lot of it is not appropriate. A lot of it is not appropriate for the kids and the parents feel the same way. So I think that for us, there are certain things that if it comes off of indoctrination and making it look that you're pushing things on kids, it's important that not only do we protect them for their safety, but we want to protect their purity too. This is something we want to make sure that we protect their minds, protect their hearts, to make sure that they're getting in there and they're learning about math and reading and making sure that we're not giving a gateway to anybody that's going to come in here and try to indoctrinate kids. I think that it's our job to protect our kids. And yeah, that's exactly I, what we're doing. I, I think that's pretty much a bipartisan kind of outlook. I don't think you would get any pushback on that whatsoever. Um, I think the pushback comes between what is teaching, what is lesson, um, yeah. and what is, you know, a, a, we talked last, uh, last segment with someone from the ADL who talked about how important cultural uh, education was and education about everybody and all the different kinds of people that, so there's, th there's that and then there is, quote, 
indoctrination. And, and how do you separate those two? Correct, and it's, it's a number of things, right? Right, Glenn, like you said, and when it comes to history and talking about those things, it's really tough because if you said disinformation or misinformation, we're getting a lot of information that people are not clear about. So when it comes to things like critical race theory or when it comes to black history, it's two separate things here. It's important that our kids are learning black history. We're very clear about that. The curriculum is clear about that. And we promote that because black history is American history. And we're gonna fight for that to make sure that that's in the classroom and kids are being educated on that. But when it comes to certain things and there's different things that are being pushed on our kids, we have to be aware of that. We have to be aware of it and just make sure that we're fighting to protect our kids' minds. Um, and do you think like that's you said, happening? Do you, do you think that's happening now? Can you cite an, an example or two so everyone is just very clear on what that is? What is happening now that, that needs to go? Sure, and I think it's, like, like we said, there's books being banned. I think there's different things. If you do do research of like the things that are not being allowed in the classroom, taking a look at that, you get to see it's pretty clear that there's, there's things that, like I said, it doesn't matter what side you're on, doesn't matter how you see things politically. I think we all agree that it's not appropriate. You have, um, your son is, how old is he in public school? My son is three and a half going on 20. He's- I had a couple of those. <laughs> is, he, and, and is, he in, is he in Broward Public Schools? He, he's actually in a Abundant Life Christian Academy here in Margate, Florida. And you are an advocate of school choice, obviously. I am. Correct. And how does that play as a as a board member of a public school? How how does that translate? Of course, I mean I think it's you know we look at at children. We look at I have nieces, nephews. Um, some most of them go to public school. We have some in private school, some in charter school. I believe there's not one recipe of one fits all. I think whatever we see, if something is not working for your children's education, we want to promote that. We want to do what's best for the kids. Um, but for our goal, we want to make sure that we work with public schools to make sure that they're the, you know, the best institutions for learning. We're supporting our teachers. We're supporting the systems to make sure the facilities are great. Uh, we're just, we just need to work and go to work for, for our schools to make sure that they're the best for everyone. Newest board member in Broward, Daniel Foganoli. It is so nice to meet you virtually, virtually, and I appreciate your time this morning. And we will be in touch now that you have that seat on the board, of course. Yes, Glenna, and thank you so much for everything that you do. You and Michael are such a key to South Florida, and we're grateful for you. Ah, thank you for that on, on both our behalves. <laughs> thank you. All right, next, a trip to the southern border, an up-close look at where deadly fentanyl in Florida comes from and those who work to stop it. This is a Local 10 exclusive. This week marked the first ever National Fentanyl Awareness Day. More than half of all fatal drug overdoses involve fentanyl. South Florida is an epicenter. A recent case involving spring breakers in Wilton Manors made national headlines. Much of the fentanyl comes into the U.S. over the southern border from Mexico. Local 10's Janine Stanwood and Jason Weitzman went there where they got unusual up-close access with border agents and what they were able to document is a must-see. A border patrol agent taking a young woman into custody after finding these packages taped to her body. You think it's fentanyl? Uh, for fairly certain, yeah. Moments later. Sad today, it's a junior 16-year-old girl. This agent removing bags of drugs from a teenager. Both were inside a shuttle van that was flagged. Where'd you find it? So this 16-year-old had this entire 
package, imagine one side from her uh, hip all the way up to her bra, tucked underneath there. The other side, same thing. So this, and it was taped onto her body. It was taped onto her body. It was taped so strong that she, she looked abnormal in shape. And that's what tipped you off. We are at the I-19 immigration checkpoint in Arizona, a main artery north from the Mexico border, some 2,000 miles away from South Florida. U.S. Border Patrol giving us exclusive access to the work they do to stop human smuggling and drug running that has a direct impact on the rest of the country. The primary purpose for the canines here at the checkpoint is to detect concealed humans. Um, secondary is for controlled substances. We have seen an uptick in fentanyl here at the checkpoint for sure. This fiscal year alone, agents in the Tucson sector have intercepted 180 pounds of fentanyl, already outpacing the year before by more than double. Sometimes it's concealed inside bodies or tucked into the hoods of trucks, which is why they they use scopes and x-rays. The deadly synthetic opioid developed decades ago to treat pain in hospitalized cancer patients is smaller in size and more profitable than marijuana, which has seen a decrease in flow since some U.S. states have legalized it. As fentanyl floods the southern border, it makes its way into American cities, including South Florida, if it's not stopped. In March, West Point cadets in Wilton Manors for spring break overdosed on cocaine laced with fentanyl. There were multiple people uh, in cardiac arrest in the front yard. Days later, four men in a house in unincorporated Broward County got sick as well. Agents with the Drug Enforcement Administration say the chemicals used to make fentanyl come from China or India get sent to Mexico, where they're pressed into pills and smuggled across the border, which is why we're here to see for ourselves. We went to the DEA in Tucson, agents showing us some of what they, Border Patrol agents and customs officers have seized. So this is a seizure from a checkpoint right near the southern border. These are fentanyl pills. DE agents say four of these bags, about 119,000 pills. So take a look at this. These are pill presses that were seized. What happens is the chemicals and the binding agents go in here. This thing gets cranked, and then those pills get pressed right over here. Back at the checkpoint. Can you grab seizure bags? Agents looking at the drugs found on those young women. We'll field test them. We have a rapid response test. Um, indicators, light blue pills. They have the, an M stamped. The pills are stamped to look like oxycodone, but field tests confirm they are fentanyl, which could sicken anyone, even touching it with bare hands. Inside the other bag, crystal meth. Both alleged smugglers now face criminal charges. So now she's in trouble, and at least this is off the street. Yeah. We're going where the smugglers go. Let's go. Underground. Come on through, watch your head. This is the Grand Tunnel, a massive storm and drainage channel that moves water beneath the U.S.-Mexico border in Arizona. It has also moved people and drugs. The reflective line you see right there, that is the international boundary. 
This is the underground route from Mexico to the United States via this drainage tunnel. Agents say it looks a lot different now than it did 20 years ago. Over the last 20 years, we've been able to take back control of this drainage system. 126 smuggling tunnels have been discovered by highly specialized U.S. Border Patrol agents with the Tucson sector near the border town Nogales. Some like this uncovered inside a house in a retirement community. That spot right there. Where we are, smugglers have not only tapped into this infrastructure, but they hand dig other illicit passageways like this one. We were able to figure out that the tunnel existed, and then part of our process is we need to fill it back up so they can't use it again. This giant gate has stopped smugglers from using the main thoroughfare, and thanks to a partnership with law enforcement in Mexico and technology like cameras, 34 more tunnels have been uncovered in this channel alone since 2009. We're never going to stop them, obviously, from trying to smuggle narcotics and people, but our presence here makes it more difficult for them. Just a few miles west and above the surface is the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Nogales Port of Entry. There's a big flow. Where trucks full of food and goods get inspected every day. It's also where massive amounts of drugs have been stopped. Officers seeing a spike in the synthetic opioid fentanyl. How many fentanyl pills so far have you seized right so here? So we're about 3 million for this fiscal year here in Nogales. 3 million pills. Yeah, 6,000 pounds of the methamphetamine. This is a city of 20,000 people. It's not staying here. It's, it's, it's going to the West Coast, the East Coast. Port Director Michael Humphreys, who happened to have busted the little brother of drug kingpin El Chapo back in 1989, tells us smugglers get creative. Recently hiding fentanyl in crockpots full of meat. Just gonna take this piece of art home. Taping it to religious artwork and stuffing it in car parts. So this is a car battery, they hollow it out. They insert a lawnmower or motorcycle battery. They have a void there and they'll fill it with fentanyl pills. So what we do here at the border prevents all of that from making it to South Florida, to Ohio, to Kentucky, and New York. Preventing tragedies like what happened last fall to Melissa Hernandez, a 21-year-old Hollywood woman whose father says took what she thought was Xanax that was actually pressed with fentanyl. She was found dead the next day. So officers here use mirrors, density meters, drug-sniffing canines, and x-rays if they need to give cargo or passengers a second look. So right now, this truck, this is a mobile x-ray. You can see that it is running past all of these big rigs. It's taking several photos as it goes. There's also a new state-of-the-art lower radiation x-ray being built so truckers can stay in their cabs while they're being scanned. This is going to be much more efficient, and it's going to allow us to scan a lot more traffic than we do now. It's not just border security, it's national security. We want to put a stop to this. We're fathers, we're mothers, we're, we're you know, we, we have uh, nieces and nephews. We don't want them getting a hold of any of that stuff. In Nogales, Arizona, Janine Stanwood, Local 10 News. Stay tuned for a look behind the scenes of that report. Janine joins us next live for a debrief. Local 10's Janine Stanwood with us right now, back from the border with that incredible report, graciously allowing us to crash her Sunday 
to get a really uh, a real glimpse at how hi Janine how did you do that how did you get such access like that um Glenna first of all thanks for having me on the show I really appreciate it uh and I, and I think you know the answer to that because you you do it yourself you ask questions um we asked a lot of questions of the Drug Enforcement Administration here in Miami they were so happy to talk to us about fentanyl, where it comes from, what it can do to you. Um, special agent in charge, um, Dan uh, uh, Ruder, we do have to give her a big shout out for just giving us so much information. When we were doing our initial stories on these fentanyl overdoses of the spring breakers of Melissa Hernandez from Hollywood. So um, special agent in charge Ruder was just so awesome. And then from there, we started asking questions where is this stuff coming from? And we've done a lot of stories about drug interdictions here in South Florida, the Coast Guard getting bales of marijuana and cocaine, but the fentanyl, we're not seeing it coming from our shores. So I asked, well, where's it coming from? And it's mostly coming from the Southern border and agents and officers there are stopping it in record numbers. So we wanted to know, what does it look like? What are these agents and officers dealing with? Um, and so our contacts with Customs and Border Protection, um, so many of them work together. Uh, we've learned through this reporting that it's not just the DEA and CBP here in South Florida that, that, that works um, in a vacuum, they all work together. And so we were able to go down there and get incredible access to see what these men and women are dealing with on a daily basis, and it was eye-opening. Really eye-opening, and it was really interesting to hear one of the agents who said uh, in your report that he acknowledged, we're never gonna stop all of it, we're just trying to make it more difficult. So we see, we ride along with you, and we see this, this woman with the fentanyl strapped to her body and how it comes in and the tunnels, but did they give you an idea of how much they are not able to get? What does get across? Right, that's the big question. How much is able to come through? And obviously it is coming through because people are still overdosing and people are still dying. But just the fact that this fiscal year alone, which started in October, uh, at the port alone, uh, which is where I think a lot of it comes through, the port director said three million pills so far. And they're small, many of them are small. They're made to look like uh, prescriptions. But that's a lot, and they're they're really stopping a lot. And so, um, you know, that's that's the big question: how much of it is coming through, and and what are they doing? And it's a constant um, it's a constant effort to improve technology, to improve human intelligence, uh, to get these things off the streets. The, the whole fentanyl awareness sort of bubbling up into public consciousness now, you know, the, the war on drugs is older than we are, and there are people who are addicted, people who choose to do uh, narcotics, but fentanyl isn't one of them. That's not a choice drug. So, you know, I, I guess people, I, I will say, I'm just kind of learning a lot through what you're doing why fentanyl where did that come from and it's kind of like uh, there's illicit drugs and then there's fentanyl that's an illicit illicit drug and so, so um, why, why is why is this product even available it's cheap and it's profitable and i'm learning too uh because i didn't understand it either and i and i'm still learning but i think now that is what agents are seeing over the last few years. This is a drug that is pressed into pills to look like Xanax, to look like Percocet. It made national news, these 14 and 15 year old kids in the DC area died 
taking what they thought was Percocet. Um, this woman in South Florida died after her dad said she took what she thought was Xanax. Um, and they're also, uh, fentanyl's also being mixed with illicit drugs. So from what we are learning is that it's cheap, it's profitable, um, I think it can kill, but can, it can also produce a very potent high. And unfortunately, that does get people hooked. Um, not everybody knows, as you said, that they're taking it. Uh, and so it's, it's extremely dangerous. And that's why it is such a challenge for these agents on the ground every day. I don't think you could hammer that home enough that people who are taking whatever drugs they believe they're taking, whether they're, they think they're prescription or not prescription, they may not know they're taking fentanyl. That, that's staggering. No. It's staggering, and it is so it is so lethal that if you noticed in our story, if you noticed in our reporting in Wilton Manors, um, the, uh, the, the local uh, police and fire departments, uh, the agent at the checkpoint in the border, always wearing gloves, it, it can make you sick even just by touching it. That's how incredibly lethal it is. You know, I want to, in the minute or so that we have left, I want to go back to the border for a second. The, the southern border is such in the focus of such a political battle right now. And a lot of people don't talk about that there is traffic over the border that is completely legitimate every day. There are people who go to work back and forth, the U.S. from Mexico and vice versa, and business. What did you see, if anything, firsthand about how the, how the, the border is being secured where you were? Well, so there are legal points of entry. So the port of Nogales, which is where we are, which is not the biggest port of entry on the southern border, but it's certainly very busy. Um, produce, goods and services. I mean, things that come across the border legally every day. Of course, people vacationing, people who live in border towns go back and forth to see relatives and, and to do and to do things. And then, of course, um, there are those who are trying to smuggle drugs in uh, across across the, the legal ports of entry as well. Uh, and then there is the uh, border that is uh, protected by Border Patrol. And that's where uh, people um, and this will, you know, segue us into uh, part three and four next week, um, but people trying to cross that border illegally to try to come to the United States for a better life. And there is so much work that's being done. These federal agents who we met are, um, many of them uh, are immigrants themselves. Many of them uh, have worked through different administrations. So yes, the border can certainly be politicized, but the men and the women who work that border every day trying to stop uh, human smuggling and drug smuggling, they're just doing the work and they kind of all have that same mission that they've had uh, no matter who's in office. Yeah, well, good to know that three or four, episodes three or four are still ahead. Good promo for that. Um, fascinating <laughs> stuff. And I am grateful to you for spending a little bit of your Sunday with us. Janine Stanwood, thanks mm -hmm. so much. Thanks, Glenn. And we will be right back. To rewatch today's interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast, grab your phone right now. Scan this QR code right there on the screen. It will take you right to the This Week in South Florida section of Local10.com. And we thank you, as always, for being here with us. We are online 24-7 at Local10.com. Also, a programming note, we're standing by right now for an ABC News special report with an update on that mass shooting in Buffalo. 
have a beautiful Sunday.